Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today I'm really delighted to have a farmer on with us, and you might think, well, this is a dietitian speaking. Why is she interviewing somebody who farms? And that's because at the heart of all of our food is the seed and the farmer who plants it and grows it and harvests it for us. So I am indebted to the farmers who produce great food, and I'm indebted for you to be on today. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Melinda. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Frank Morton, you have been farming for over 25 years. Tell me how you got started. It was really just the impulse for self-reliance is the way I usually describe it. When I graduated from college, I had a, a BS in psychology emphasizing child development. I knew I didn't want to do that professionally. And actually, I have a lot of artistic impulses. So it occurred to me that rather than be, trying to be a starving artist, I should be an artist who farmed. Mm-hmm. And that way, I could pursue something that would enhance my self-reliance, that is farming, and that would free me to to be an artist, if that's what would happen. In the end, I just got sucked into farming, and farming became an artistic expression for me and continues to be that. I think that happens to a lot of farmers. So the name of the farm that you're working on, and I should let our listeners know that I met you at a Seed Alliance meeting in Wisconsin, and you had a great story to tell, and I wanted you to come on and talk about what it's like to be a farmer and to deal with what's going on right now with some of the seed issues. But you and your wife, it says on the website that you are from Shoulder to Shoulder Farm, That's right. but you co-coordinate the seed production program with Wild Garden Seed. Is that correct? With our friends at Gathering Together Farm, we have a partnership, and the expression of our partnership is Wild Garden Seeds. In essence, Gathering Together Farm is 50 acres of organic produce growing, marketed through CSAs, restaurants, wholesale, and an on-farm restaurant. And Karen and my family and I manage the seed growing, organic seed growing aspect of Gathering Together Farm. So we grow our seed crops on approximately five to seven acres of seed crops per year that are a part of the agricultural system at at Gathering Together. So our seed crops are actually in rotation with vegetable crops. The farm actually uses the seed that we grow to produce their crops. We sometimes use their crops as selection opportunities to improve our seed stocks. So, essentially, we are an organic farm that includes a seed production and plant breeding aspect to it. And Karen and myself and our small crew manage that part of the farming operation. But we are basically a two-farm partnership that produces wild garden seeds. And you are located in southern Oregon, is that correct? Western Oregon. It's about two hours south of Portland. Okay. We're in the Willamette Valley, which is one of the richest vegetable and seed production regions, well, actually of the United States, but certainly in Oregon. 
the Willamette Valley is recognized as a world-class place to grow specialty seed crops. And specialty seed crops are defined as vegetable seeds, flower seeds, seeds for sugar beets actually is included in this. But seed companies from all over the world come to our valley to produce seed because we have just the right climate with just the right temperature ranges and the proper rainfall patterns for high-quality seed production. Well, what made you interested in coming to the Seed Alliance meeting? Did you come with a, with a heavy heart about a particular issue? Well, I was invited to come because I've been involved in plant breeding for organics, organic agriculture for a long time. Uh, but more recently, I've become involved in what's essentially a struggle against biotechnology or biotech seeds, actually. In organic seeds, we don't allow any presence of genetically engineered traits. But what we've been seeing in the past 10 years is that wherever biotech seeds are grown, there has inevitably been cross-contamination issues between conventional seed and genetically engineered seed. And that has become a, a big issue for me. I happen to be in an area where 95% of the United States sugar beet seed is grown. And the sugar beet seed industry has gone transgenic in the last, actually in the last three years. And so basically my seed crops, my organic seed crops for table beets and Swiss chard are endangered by cross-contamination with genetically engineered sugar beets. And this has basically focused my attention on this issue in a way that my attention was never focused on genetic engineering before. Basically, they have stepped into my backyard. Suddenly, I feel like I have a very personal struggle going on. Well, Frank, this is your livelihood, clearly. And it sounds like if your seeds become contaminated, wouldn't the entity responsible for the contamination be responsible? There actually are no laws that make the biotech industry or the patent holders on the biotech traits responsible. As the law stands right now, there is only one legal recourse, a person like me or a corn grower in the Midwest or a soy grower in the Midwest can take, and that is essentially a lawsuit, and that would be a civil lawsuit. And the only people that can be sued, according to the court decision so far, would be my neighbor, the person who actually grows the seed. But in our situation out here in Oregon, that would be very unsatisfactory because, in fact, my neighbor has no choice about whether or not he grows genetically engineered seeds because the sugar beet industry has gone 95% genetically engineered. My neighbor basically must grow genetically engineered sugar beet seeds or else he won't be growing any sugar beet seeds at all. He actually has no choice. So it would seem to me to be um, very unsatisfactory to try to blame my neighbor for bringing genetic uh, technology to my neighborhood. So do you mean that your neighbor cannot find sugar beet seed that is not genetically modified? No, it's 
the, the sugar beet seed production is actually controlled by only two seed production companies. Two companies grow all the sugar beet seed for the United States. These two companies award contracts to seed growers, and this industry actually dates back to the Second World War. And so these sugar beet seed growers have been, in many cases, growing these crops for multiple generations. I know a third-generation sugar beet grower. And the relationship between the farmer and the seed company is strictly top-down. The sugar beet seed grower, the farmer who owns the land and drives the tractor, has no choice about what kind of sugar beet seed he grows. It is a contractual relationship. And the only sugar beet seed that is currently required by the sugar industry or desired by the sugar industry is genetically engineered seed. So it's not as if my neighbor can grow whatever kind of seed he wants and market it as he wishes. It doesn't work that way. It's a strictly contract. You grow on contract. You grow what the company tells you to grow. If you don't want to grow what the company tells you to grow, then you won't grow anything when it comes to sugar beet seed. Is that because they won't have a place to sell their sugar beets then when it comes time to harvest? That's right. They wouldn't have a buyer. Uh, it's not an independent operator kind of system. And that's what makes me different than the sugar beet seed growers in the valley here. I am an independent seed company. I can grow whatever I personally want to, and I can sell it to anybody that I want to. But it's because I have a large diversity of seeds. I grow many kinds of seeds. I grow about 30 different species of seeds that includes, you know, up to about 150 different varieties altogether. And I have many, many outlets for my seeds. I can sell them directly to farmers and gardeners through our website, which we do. But we also sell to all the mail catalog companies, you know, the mail order catalog companies that mm -hmm. sell seeds to organic farmers. And the names of these companies would be pretty familiar to anyone who is a, a gardener or a commercial farmer. Our seeds go to something like 12 or 15 different seed companies where they are repackaged and sold. So unlike my neighbor, I have lots of freedom and independence and choice about what I grow. But for many seed growers, it's not that way. They only end up growing what their contracting company asks for. Can they get out of those contracts? Can they become more diversified and get out of those relationships, or are they just so profitable that they don't want to? Well, in agriculture, you know, in main stem agriculture, you know, we usually find that the places where a farmer can sell his product is usually somewhat limited. Even mm -hmm. in the Midwest, when farmers grow soy or they grow corn, there are only a certain number of buyers for those products in their region. And this is one of the issues of concentration in agriculture, is on one side the farmer can only buy his supplies from a limited number of entities, and on the other side he can only sell his products to a limited number of entities. In organic agriculture, we are much more diversified we have much more freedom to operate than most of our conventional farming 
prayer. Mm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Frank Morton. He and his wife Karen of Shoulder to Shoulder Farm co-coordinate the seed production program at Gathering Together Farm. They grow organic seeds. They have a wide variety of garden seeds, and they are dealing with some issues in agriculture that I think we as end eaters need to know about so we can work together. Frank, we should talk a little bit about, I think, you know, what happens with biotechnology with regard to seeds. So when when seeds are bioengineered, what are they bioengineered to do? Good question. The public hears a lot of what I call happy talk about what biotechnology and agriculture will be bringing to consumers, to the world. And usually what they end up describing are such things as drought resistance, salty soil tolerance, higher nutritional value. Those are the selling points of biotechnology. When we actually look at what biotechnology has done in about the 10 or 13 years since biotechnology has been producing crops, what has actually been engineered is a resistance to herbicides, mostly. And the most famous one, of course, is crop resistance to Roundup herbicide. And this allows for farmers to spray their crop of corn or soybeans or cotton or canola or now sugar beets. They can spray the crop in the whole field with this herbicide. All the weeds will die, but the Roundup-resistant crop plants will not die. So basically what this does for farmers is it makes life very easy. It provides convenience for the farmer. The farmer only needs to buy one farm chemical to take care of all of his weed problems. And it's a package deal where the company who has the patents on the technology in the seeds also supplies the farm chemical that those seeds have been bioengineered to work with. So it's a package deal. You buy Roundup Ready Seeds, and then you buy Roundup. And this has been extremely profitable for the Monsanto Corporation. Yeah, and the prices keep going up for... Both the seed, I guess with each trait that's added, the price goes up a little bit more, and then the price of the herbicide goes up as well? That has been the pattern so far. Farmers have begun to sharpen their pencils a little bit in the last two years. It's my understanding that in soybeans, actually, there were some reversals for the first time over the last two years where farmers realized they could actually earn more money if they chose normal soybeans rather than biotech soybeans. Yeah. Because because the fees, what are referred to as technology fees, are very high. Right. If they can find the non-GMO seed, that's, that's one of right. the issues. Well, that's the other issue, is that in the crops where biotechnology has been most dominant, the variety, the variety of, of seeds that is available to plant has been reduced because, well, farmers really have enjoyed using Roundup Ready crops. It, in the short term, it has made their life very easy. Now, the backside of this, and we, we need to quickly get into this, is 
while it seems easy and efficient in the beginning of the Roundup Ready process, uh, over time, the weeds develop resistance to the herbicide. And so now it's been shown that in the case of cotton in particular, which has had Roundup resistance in it as long as almost anything, there are now Roundup-resistant weeds. And Roundup-ready cotton is no longer a weed-free crop. The same is true in Roundup-ready soybeans. At one point, farmers could spray the Roundup and there would be no weeds. Now, there are weeds that have adapted to the application of the herbicide, and now they have weed problems again. And to control those weeds, they need to use a second herbicide. Mm. So the original promise of simplicity has, in just a few crop cycles, four or five crop cycles, uh, has actually spawned resistance, which is no surprise to anyone who thinks about farming from an ecological perspective. Right. So this is an unintended consequence, a big time unintended consequence. Mm-hmm. The other unintended not the only one. No, it's not the only one. So let's yeah, let's let's talk about some of the other ones that you've experienced. Some really interesting reading that I've come across in the last two years are writings by soil scientists at the University of Purdue, at the University of Manitoba, and other places. And these scientists have noted that in soils that are being used for Roundup-ready crop rotation, the microbiology of the soil has actually shifted. And we began hearing anecdotes from places like North Dakota three years ago or more in which they were saying that they were having outbreaks of a very serious wheat disease called fusarium head scab. And these outbreaks of head scab were occurring even when the weather conditions would not predict such a thing. So scientists at the University of Manitoba actually went back and looked at crop rotations and looked at the use of Roundup-ready crops in those rotations. And what they found was that if wheat or barley was growing subsequent to the growing of Roundup-ready crops, such as soybeans, those wheat crops were much more likely to develop head scab. On further examination, what they have found is that in the soil, the balance between pathogenic fusarium species and benign or beneficial fusarium species shifts under the influence of Roundup or glyphosate herbicide. And the shift is toward a pathogenic fusarium population that basically is the cause of head scab. So other scientists are now talking about this. There is a wonderful paper that's been written for the European Journal of Agronomy talking about the interactions between glyphosate that is Roundup herbicide, with the physiology of plants, the nutrition of the plants, and diseases in plants. And apparently, there are more scientists looking at this all the time. And it's pointing out that Roundup-ready crop rotations may actually be setting the stage for predictable losses of wheat and barley crops due to head scab. And then will these conditions require stronger and more toxic 
applications of pesticides and herbicides? Well, it's an interesting thing because, yes, in order to control such things as head scab and wheat, they will have to apply chemicals to control those diseases during weather conditions and farming conditions where they never would have had to spray those chemicals before. The anecdotes from North Dakota are are very interesting. There has been a predictable weather-based model for predicting when head scab will be a danger. And so in the past, farmers would spray based on weather condition patterns. Well, now that relationship seems to have broken down. And what it looks like now is that you get disease outbreaks even when the weather is good. And so presumably, if you want to try to prevent head scab, you will be applying fungicides even when you would not have been applying them before. So in the case of sugar beets, there are three diseases of sugar beets that have been investigated. One is called rhizoctonia, and they're finding that there are increases in those diseases in these lab experiments when they apply Roundup to Roundup-ready beets and grow them in in soils, they're seeing the same sorts of things where the beets are more susceptible to fungal diseases than beets that are not part of a Roundup Ready program. Well, Frank, can I just interject here? Do you think that because of these negative consequences that we're going to see a shift back to the non-GMO seed? Can we go back? Oh, yes, we can go back. (laughs) We can go back, but... It is true that whenever anyone talks about going back, the industry talks about how much money is going to be lost in the process of going from biotechnology back to what we did before. You would think that from reading about how much money is going to be lost, that we can't do it or that you know this is a one-way street we've gone down. I just don't understand that thinking. We got along without biotechnology and farming for 10,000 years. There's no reason that we can't go back to that. Well, I, you know, I think we have so much to lose here, not the least of which is farmer independence, but certainly the public health side of applying these pesticides and then more pesticides and then certainly the contamination. We have to wrap up because our time is up. But I want to give you the opportunity to leave our listeners with a message that I neglected to ask or bring up during our conversation. Well, I would just like to say that I really think that genetically engineered technology in agriculture is a flawed model of sustainability, even though it's often sold under the banner of sustainable ag. Indeed. There are enormous upfront costs that require, actually, the investment of stockholders. The technology also requires the application of intellectual property protection to this technology in order to satisfy those stockholders. This has led to issues of scientific research being compromised because there's so much money to be lost if any science should ever show that this technology isn't delivering what it says it's delivering. And scientists have talked about how their research is actually hampered by the intellectual property protection that surrounds biotechnology. The scientists say they can't do their science. Well, Frank, 
I think we're going to just have to have you back to further tell this evolving story because it's you've given us a lot uh, to chew on, I guess you could say. Um, I want to let people know that we've been talking with Frank Morton, a vegetable and seed farmer in western Oregon. And if you want to go to his website and look at his wonderful crops and farm, it's www.wildgardenseed.com. Frank, I want to thank you for being with me today. I want to thank our listeners and remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Frank, and good luck. Thank you, Melinda, for having me on. I look forward to coming back sometime. Great.